Amen. Well, like I said, we just started this series uh, called Questions, and right out of the gates, we're going to tackle the topic that we have most recently received the most questions about, and that is questions relating to sexuality, particularly on the topic of LGBTQ. Now, of all the topics we're going to be covering in this series, this is probably the sermon that doesn't really even need an introduction. In light of the highly publicized Supreme Court ruling from a few weeks ago in uh, favor of equal marriage, but even before those recent events, you know, as a church, we get flooded with questions from you guys all the time about sexuality. What is God's vision for marriage? Um, what, why is sex outside of marriage wrong, according to the Bible? Uh, is the Bible homophobic? Um, what, what about gay marriage? All sorts of questions that we get, and all of these are very important questions, and we believe that the Bible speaks into every single one of them. And so here's the goal for today. We're gonna do a very brief uh, theology of sexuality from the scriptures because, by the way, that's where we need to start all of these conversations on sexuality. We need to start them by going to the Bible. Uh, and if you're here and you're already questioning that, you're thinking, well, why should we listen to or trust what an ancient text like the Bible has to say on sexuality? Well, come next week. That's Tim's topic. Should be great. Um, but today, we're gonna do a quick theology of sexuality and then we're going to talk specifically uh, after that, about the LGBTQ stuff, because that's where uh, most of the questions are coming from right now, and so I will zero in on that. At one point, when I do that, uh, I'm going to do that out of necessity, uh, not so much out of choice, per se, because uh, as I'll point out later, you know, we do a terrible disservice by singling out LGBTQ in sexuality conversations. However, given the avalanche of questions we get, and because that's the point of this series to answer your questions, I'll go there. With that said, Please, please hear me out. Those of you in the room this afternoon who are sitting here and you identify or associate in any way with the LGBTQ community, uh, or you're here and uh, you're attracted to the same gender, I have some things to say this afternoon that will be difficult for you to hear. But please stay with me, uh, hang in there, hear me out, all the way through, uh, because after that, I have some even more difficult things to say to all the rest of us who identify with the church, all right? With that said, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter one, and just get right to it. Genesis chapter one, this is how the Bible starts. In Genesis one, verse one, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the heavens and the earth is a well-known Jewish idiom that basically means everything. Think of the English phrase that we have from top to bottom or stem to stern, right? It means all of it. So in the beginning, the Bible says God created everything, stars, planets, rocks, mountains, oceans, trees, animals, you name it. But when he created humans, he made human beings very different from the rest of creation. Skip down to verse 26 in chapter one. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Human beings, are different from the rest of creation. We're different from the animals, okay? Both humans and animals are sexual creatures with sexual desires, uh, but humans are very different from the animals. For starters, we are self-aware, okay? Hippos do not question the meaning of life. 
Llamas do not sit around pontificating about philosophy. <laughs> Cats do not do anything, really. <laughs> But even more than being self-aware, humans are made, it says, in God's image and likeness. If you're taking notes, a few things I want to point out from Genesis. One, every person is made in God's image. At a fundamental level, every single human being is made in the image of God. And that means that every single person, every single person has dignity and value as a human created in God's image, period. Everybody, no matter what kind of stuff you're into, everybody is deserving of respect and value and goodness as image bearers of God. This is God's attitude. From the very beginning of the scriptures, this is the message on the very first pages of the scriptures. We all have value and goodness and dignity as image bearers of God. And we're very different from the animals. Sex for human beings is not strictly biological. It's also spiritual because we're image bearers of God. And so we're different from the animals, right? We're, we're not like the animals. Sex is not just a physical urge or primary instinct for human beings. Now, look at the end of chapter one at verse 31. It says, God saw how much of what he made? All that he had made and it was very good. Well, wait a minute, all that he had made? Because that would also refer back to verse 28 where it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Part of the good creation is God's commands to make babies. Question, how do you make babies? Don't pretend you don't know the answer, Noon. How do you make babies? Yeah, you do it, sex. That's the first thing God commands human beings to do in the Bible, is to have sex. I could get used to this, God. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, if you're taking notes, sex is good. Everything in the creative order, at least at the beginning, was good. That includes everything that we would refer to as sex, beauty, attraction, chemistry, the desire of a man for a woman, and vice versa, touch, kissing. It's, God calls it good, and it's not just that God calls sex good, but God created sex, okay? God created sex, not Hollywood, not Playboy, not Jay-Z and Beyonce. God created sex, and we were sexual beings in the beginning, long before we were sinful. So sex, in its very essence, in the way God created sex to be, sex is not bad or dirty or sinful or unholy. Sex is good. Everyone repeat after me. Sex is good. Sex is good. You were late. You are agreeing with God. But, <laughs> oh, you... It's extremely important to notice at the same time that sex is good, you have to notice in the scriptures that sex has a very specific context from the beginning. Look at chapter two, the narrative zeroes in on what things looked like specifically when God created human. Look at chapter two, verse uh, 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, work it, and take care of it. Verse 18. <laughs> The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, to which every young guy who has ever been single in the room and lived his life off of cereal and top ramen says, amen, not good to be alone. Then, 18, I will make a helper suitable for him. 
And that part's just Hebrew for dude needs help. Skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, or woman, for she was taken out of man. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so there you have it. And I want you to notice the order. God creates man and woman. God creates marriage, verse 24. And God creates sex, verse 25. They're naked together as husband and wife, and they feel no shame. Now, the word that's used there for one, when it says that they became one flesh, that's the Hebrew word ikad in, in Hebrew. Can I hear you say ikad? Ikad, yeah, sounds like you have phlegm in the back of your throat. And ikad is a graphic, weighty word in the Hebrew language. It means fused together at the deepest level. It's such a powerful word. Actually, that same word is used later in the Hebrew Bible to describe God himself. There is a sense in which God himself is fused together at the deepest level, is ichad, or together one. And in the Bible, when a man and a woman get married and make love, we catch a glimpse of that kind of deep, powerful, enigmatic oneness. Ikad is when two separate entities blur into one. Ikad is when you're not quite sure who's who anymore. Ikad is when you know and you are known. In fact, uh, later we read that, a chapter two later in the Genesis story when it says Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. To know uh, is a Hebrew idiom for sex. And it's fitting because when you have sex with another person, you know them at the deepest level in a way that nobody else on the planet does. That's why, by the way, there's no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing. Because according to the Bible, sex fuses you together at the deepest of levels. If you're taking notes, third, sex is powerful, okay? In sex, two separate autonomous human beings become one flesh, one human being. They are fused together. They know each other and they are known by each other. And listen, guys, that action cannot be undone. It is irreversible and immutable. And to God, the only relationship strong enough to handle that kind of untamed, fierce power of sex is marriage because that's what God created sex for. So fourth, if you're taking notes, sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. In the Bible, that's the only relationship that can handle that nuclear force that we call sex. It's a, uh, the only relationship is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. And pay close attention to verse 24, where we read that stunning line. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Um, in Hebrew, that line there is an interpolation from God himself. It's his way of saying, hey, listen up, pay attention. This marriage is a paradigm for all marriages. It's not a one-off, it's, it's a template to follow. I mean, think about when, when all of a sudden it stops and says, that, that is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. When it says that, think about it, Adam didn't have a mom or dad to leave, as far as we know, he didn't have parents. And Eve, the girl, the girl didn't have any other options, right? Just Adam. But it's written in such a way as, as to say, hey, a point is being made. This is a paradigm that is being set by God 
And so take notice, this is ground zero for a theology of marriage. And what is God's paradigm for marriage? A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his who? Wife. A man and a wife. Marriage is a lifelong, permanent, legal, and spiritual binding commitment or covenant between a man and a woman for life. And that is also the context that God made sex for. Sex is not recreational activity between two consenting adults. The Bible rejects that definition. Sex is intended to be the beautiful, powerful, and irreversible bonding mechanism of sexual intimacy and the stuff for making babies for a man and a woman in marriage. And in the beginning, that's what sex was. Now things are really good sexually in the beginning. In the, in the garden, sun's out. Adam and Eve are naked together in the garden. A little Coldplay music playing in the background. <laughs> no shame, it says. No shame. Just good, pure, naked fun. Things are good. Things are good. But unfortunately, the good soon turns into, dang it. Because when chapter 3 comes, we get what theologians call the fall where mankind sins. Instead of trusting God and listening to his instructions, they took life into their own hands and chose to define for themselves what is good and bad in life. That, by the way, is sin. And sin knocked creation out of alignment with God's good intentions for mankind. Creation, from that point on, became a broken place. And one of the things in creation that became broken was sexuality and male and female. And we start to read in the Bible about things like adultery, rape, incest, bestiality, sexual abuse, all sorts of hurtful things, sexual evil in the world. Now, some of you here in the room today, if not many of you, men and women here with us today, have been victims of terrible sexual sin. Many others of you in this room have had front row seats to watching how sexual sin can completely tear a family apart. And you need to listen. God hurts for you. He hurts for you. And so do we. That was not God's design for sexuality. And it grieves him deeply, okay? There's a lot of hurt. And there's a lot of confusion. And the confusion is still around today. Because there's... Things that aren't so blatantly evil in creation, they're just confusing. For example, two people aren't married, but they're in love, and they want to have sex. They want to be intimate together. What's the harm in that? Or a woman falls in love with a woman. Doesn't she deserve to be happy? Or, as we all uh, recently watched played out in the media last month, a guy is born a guy and grows up living a very emotionally painful life of gender confusion, uh, becomes an Olympic medalist and culture, culture celebrity as a man, but then decides last month that is enough enough, enough is enough, he wants to become a woman. And you know, I find it very interesting, by the way, that, that later that week, there was a New York Times article put out by a leader of the feminist movement on behalf of feminists uh, who, who spoke about how feminists were extremely offended by Bruce Jenner's announcement. Here's a short excerpt from that article. People who haven't lived their whole lives as women, she says, shouldn't get to define us. 
That's something men have done, been doing for much too long. By defining womanhood the way he did, Mr. Jenner and the many advocates for transgender rights who take a similar tack undermine almost a century of hard-fought arguments that the very definition of female is a social construct that has subordinated us. The I was born in the wrong body rhetoric favored by other trans people doesn't work any better and is just as offensive. Isn't it interesting that while the majority of the world is celebrating Bruce Jenner's decision to come out of the closet, many of the women uh, in our country who are fighting most vocally and aggressively for women's rights are deeply offended by his decision, labeling it as discrimination. And nobody wins. Nobody wins. Now, could it be that the witness of the Bible is correct and the gender and gender roles and sexuality are out of sync with the creator God's intentions for humanity. And there is a world of hurt and confusion as a result. But the Bible speaks into this stuff. The Bible continually clarifies and brings us back to God's Genesis 1 and 2 vision for sexuality. For example, look at Jesus. Turn to Matthew 19 in the New Testament. Matthew 19. Jesus was not quiet about this stuff, you guys. At one point, he was asked about divorce by the Pharisees, and his answer is very telling. Matthew 19, verse 3, says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This is what Jesus says. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus quotes Genesis to uphold God's view of sexuality and marriage. And Jesus reiterates, God made them male and female. God made males male, and he made females female. And what does Jesus take on who marriage is for? Well, he quotes Genesis. A man will leave his parents and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus affirms that marriage is for one man and one woman and he affirms sex is for making a husband and a wife one. In fact, Jesus thinks you know, that the deep bonding nature of sex is so strong that he adds to the Genesis account, Jesus adds, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What else does Jesus say about sexuality? Turn to Matthew 15, a few pages to the left. Matthew 15, at one point, Jesus lists off some sins that defile a person. Matthew 15, uh, we'll pick up in verse 18. He says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Now, our translation in there, it says uh, that term sexual immorality. In the Greek, it's the word porneia. Okay, what modern English word do we get from the Greek word porneia? Pornography, and that is one sexual expression that degrades God's vision for sexuality, and according to Jesus, defiles a person. But 
what does the word porneia actually mean? Well, we know exactly what it means because this word porneia runs all the way through the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. It's all over that and it's all over the New Testament as well. The biblical definition of porneia is any sexual act outside of marriage. Any and all sexual activity or action outside of marriage is porneia. This includes, but it's not limited to, sex with a boyfriend or girlfriend, sex with a fiance, sex with anyone but your spouse when you are married, random hookups, looking at pornography, adult films, visiting online sexual chat rooms, uh, going to strip clubs, friends with benefits, all of that according to the Bible, is porneia. It's all a misuse of sexuality that distorts God's design for sexuality. And all those things are diabolically opposed to God's vision for marriage and sexuality and marriage between a man and a woman. And it's sin. It's, it's corrosive. And Jesus says it defiles a person. The disrupted uh, sexual connection in marriage when you do this stuff, or one day in marriage, if you do this stuff now and you're single, the images the memories, stuff doesn't go away. And Jesus says that all of that stuff starts in the heart. It's a heart issue, according to Jesus. In fact, in another place, Jesus goes as far to say that if you even look lustfully at someone you're not married to, you've committed adultery in your heart and are guilty of sin before God. Whoa. Well, what about gay sex? Or as many of you ask us, well, what's the Bible's take on homosexuality? When Jesus says that marriage is for a man and a woman and any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin, then is he saying that gay sex is a sin? Well, yeah. It's on the exact same category and level as any other porneia, heterosexual or not, but yeah. And the rest of the Bible makes this extremely clear. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. Bear with me. Stay with me. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And the city of Corinth, guys, it had a reputation in the first century as being a very sexually depraved place. Corinth was a port town in the first century with tens of thousands of sailors, merchants, and travelers coming through 365 days out of the year. And Corinth as a city was notorious for prostitution, specifically in the ancient world. In fact, it's widely known that at one point, the main Greco-Roman temple in Corinth was home to 1,000 prostitutes. And countless men and women over the years loved to visit Corinth and go to the temple in Corinth to worship with a prostitute, if you know what I mean. But there's people coming to faith in Jesus, a part of his church. And at one point, Paul says this to them in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 9. He says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And of course in there, you know, in our uh, translation, we have that line, men who have sex with men. Paul is echoing Leviticus and the Mosaic Code, um, passages like, for example, Leviticus 18 verse 22, that 
uh, specifically list men having sex with men in the Old Testament along with all kinds of other porneia or sexual sin, but lists it as acts of rebels who are ungodly and disobedient to God. Uh, here, Paul calls them wrongdoers. And Paul later does the same exact thing in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 with a very similar list. Now, there's a few Greek words in here that I want to draw our attention to. Uh, sexually immoral. When Paul says the sexually immoral, um, that's the word porneia, same word Jesus used, so any act, uh, sexual act outside of marriage. Uh, but then when he says men who have sex with men, that's actually two different words in the Greek. Um, the word malakoi, which means being passive in a same-sex relationship, in a homosexual sex, it's the person on the receiving end. That's what Malakoi refers to, and Paul is saying that if you continue in that act, it will keep you out of God's kingdom. And then he uses the word arsenikoitai. And if you, if you look it up in the standard Greek lexicon, it says this, it says that arsenikoitai means a male who engages in sexual activity with a male. Um, it's referring more to the active partner. Now, in recent years, some have tried to argue that we don't know what arsenikoitai really means because it was never used in the Koine Greek prior to Paul and this passage. And so Paul, you know, apparently coins uh, a new term that he uses, and so you can't quite claim that that term, arsenikoitai, refers to gay sex. Um, but at this church, we don't agree with that take um, because one, uh, that goes against 2,000 years of church tradition and Christian teaching on the matter. But uh, even more important than that, primarily, uh, we think it's very obvious just when you look at the text what Paul is referring to. If you compare this word arsenikoitai uh, to the word from Leviticus 18.22 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the common Bible of Paul's day. The word that's used there for men lying with men is arsenikoithesis. Okay, do you see the similarity? Arsenikoithesis, arsenikoitai. Um, there's very clear similarities, and this is how it breaks down in the Greek, arsenikoitai is what the words mean in the Greek. Arsen means men, and koitai means lay with, okay? Paul, so, so what does arsenikoitai mean? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is simply echoing, using the very Greek words of the Greek Bible of his day from the Old Testament, and he's coining a new term out of the Old Testament phrase from Leviticus 18 and 20 that refers to same gender sex. And he's saying, it's not okay. So whether it's the active or passive partner, Paul's saying having sex with the same gender is sin. And he doesn't give an exception for same-sex couples who are legally married. It's just a blanket statement in the Bible. Now, really important for us to make a distinction immediately. Both of these terms, when they're used in the Old Testament and here in the New Testament, specifically refer to same-sex activity, not same-sex desire or attraction. And that's important, because there is a difference between activity and desire. There's a difference between action and attraction, right? Uh, the sin is what's uh, being called, the sin is same-sex actions. And desire and action are two very different things. For example, the fact that as a heterosexual male, married to my wife, uh, the fact that I may be attracted to a woman who is not my wife, and I have a gorgeous wife who I'm very attracted to, but the fact that the desire or attraction exists in me for other women, 
that I have that leaning, that I have that inclination, that I have that bent, that that temptation exists to act. The fact that that desire is there in me, that in and of itself is not sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. James, later in the New Testament, differentiates between desire, temptation, and sin, different things. And the reason uh, that I point that out, of course, you know, were I to act on those desires, the moment that I do anything with those desires, the moment I take a second look at the woman who's not my wife, the moment I lust after her, the moment I do anything else sexually with someone who's not my wife, then it is very clearly sin. And the reason I make that distinction is, you guys, we have lots of brothers and sisters who have come to faith in Jesus and are still attracted to the same gender, but they've come to faith in Jesus and they're, even though they're leaning and their desire is attraction to the same gender, they are submitting their sexuality and their desires to Jesus and they're following him faithfully and they're abstaining from any homosexual activity. And we have to be careful to not you know, in any way imply that the mere existence of same-sex attraction in someone is sin because then we risk uh, wrongfully heaping condemnation on some of our dear brothers and sisters who are following Jesus with their sexuality. However, what's clear here is that having sex with the same gender is sin. But that's not the end of it, praise God. Because 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, that's about the wrongdoing but 1 Corinthians 6, 11 talks about the biblical narrative. And what is it? Read on. And that is what, verse 11, that is what some of you were, past tense, but you were washed, cleansed of your sins. You were sanctified, dedicated to God. You were justified, forgiven, and accepted as a child of God. Why? Because you brought your brokenness to Jesus. That's the message. It doesn't matter who you are and what you've done. It doesn't matter what pornea has been in your life, heterosexual or other. You bring it to Jesus. And when you do that, you can find washing and forgiveness and acceptance in him. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul gives a very similar list to this that includes men having sex with men. And then he says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then what does he say? of which I am chief. And if Paul says he's chief of sinners, what does that make you and I? So, so what do you do with the sin and brokenness in your life? Well, no matter what it is, you bring it to Jesus. When you do that, is he gonna condemn you? No. He's gonna say, what you're doing is wrong, but I'm here to help. I love you. I wanna forgive you and wash. I wanna show you the goodness and joy of God's way. If you just say, well, what I'm doing isn't wrong. You reject God's grace and the opportunity for him to wash you and forgive you and for you to know God's goodness. Now, the big, big mistake that people have made today in our culture is singling out homosexual sin as if it's worthy of greater attention or greater judgment than anything else on these lists. That's the huge mistake that's been made. There is plenty of other sins on this list, my friends. For example, he talks about those who worship idols. Uh, Let's talk idolatry. Have you ever lived for anything or anyone else beside God? Have you ever idolized a person in your life or a dream career or a marriage or the idea of marriage? Greed, he says the greedy in the same list. Any of you here ever been greedy for more, coveted more money, more stuff, not been content with what you have? I was greedy earlier this week. 
I was sitting around my house thinking, you know, I would be so happy if I just had these nine more things for my yard and this downstairs right now. I'm guilty. Slanderers. You ever spoken wrongfully against someone else? You ever gossiped? You ever been drunk? You ever committed adultery in your heart by lusting after someone else? We're all guilty. And we, we got to be clear on this. Jesus and the Bible do not single out gay sex as being a bigger sin than anything else. One last passage, Romans 1. You guys have been doing great. Thank you. Bear with me. Romans 1. One last passage. It's a very important uh, passage in the New Testament where Paul's describing the downward spiral of humanity into sin after Adam and Eve. And at one point it says in verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So it's talking about sexual sin. And it says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. You guys need to understand something. According to Paul here, at the root of any and all sexual sin, at the root of it is idolatry. It's a worship thing. Choosing to worship the created over the creator. And so when it comes down to it, this whole conversation this afternoon about sexuality, this whole conversation is not about choosing your sexual preferences or leanings. This is not about choosing your sexual identity or orientation. This is not about choosing whether or not you'll sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend or choosing your opinion on sexuality. But ultimately, this whole conversation is about choosing your God. It's about choosing who you will worship, the creator or the created. Rosario Butterfield is an author who was a lesbian, came to faith in Jesus. This is something that she says. If God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and culture and not the other way around. This was the first of my many betrayals against the LGBT community. Whose dictionary did I trust? The one used by the community that I helped create or the one that reflected the God who created me? Who are you gonna let influence your opinions on sexuality? What voices are you guys gonna listen to? The voices of culture? The words of your friends or family members or coworkers? The words of the Supreme Court in our country? the words of Macklemore, or the words of the God who created you. Paul says, when sexual sins spread, they exchanged truth for a lie. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their errors. So Paul's pointing us back. There was a natural design that God had for sex between a man and a woman. He says, in the downward spiral of things, uh, women exchanged those natural sexual relations and were inflamed with lust for women. Men were inflamed with lust for men. And then Paul lists, just like in any of the other passages we looked at, he lists all kinds of other areas of sin in verses 28 through 32. And similar things show up. Greed, envy, uh, lying is in here. Have any of you ever lied? Boasting disobeying your parents in verse 30. 
It's all deserving of God's punishment and God's justice. And then we come to chapter two. And this is really important, guys. There's no chapter breaks in the original Greek language. This is on the same exact subject. The next thing Paul says on this topic is this, and I'm putting this puppy up on a screen. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. How many of you in this room have never sinned before in your life? One of you, and that was just the first right there. First sin in your life. None of us have a right to judge anyone else because we're all sinners. None of us have a right to point the finger at someone gay, straight, or other because we're all broken sinners in need of God's grace. Every single one of us in this room comes to God on a continuum of sexual brokenness in need of his healing and life-changing transformative power to begin to work in our lives. Question, is the Bible homophobic? Answer, a resounding no. Because what is homophobia? Fear, ostracization, keeping someone at arm's length because of a difference, judgment toward, ridicule of, and the Bible is emphatically against that kind of behavior in followers of Jesus. We are not to self-righteously judge, but to love people while embodying 100% truth. We do not compromise the truth of the scriptures, but at the same time, it has to be 100% grace. Grace! And this, my friends, is where I need to say some difficult things to the rest of us. Because uh, as I mentioned at the end of my teaching a couple weeks ago, the church, the evangelical church, when we look out at the landscape of our nation, over recent decades, the church has not done a good job of loving and showing grace to the LGBT community. There has been homophobia and bigotry and hatred and ignorance, and it's come out full force since the Supreme Court ruling. Passive, aggressive, or you know, blatantly harsh Facebook posts toward another human being made in God's image. There's been coldness toward the LGBT community and the church and how we talk about this stuff. And there's been ignorance in the evangelical church. I mean, dare I say, perhaps the fact that some of us in this room don't know what all the letters in LGBTQ even stand for might reveal some ignorance on our part and failure on our part to truly learn about and understand a mission field of people in our very own city and neighborhoods who we're called to love and bring the gospel to. Our lack of interest in building friendships with gay people in the church is wrong. It misses the heart of God. In the scriptures, Jesus welcomes sinners, it says, invites them, sits down to eat meals with them and preaches repentance to them. I mean, these are people made in God's image who Jesus desperately loves. And guys, there's something that's been so heavy on my heart and even when I share this with you, I mean, I do it with fear and trembling because this is uh, just a verse that has been burning on my heart and personally working on me. I'm talking me the last couple weeks, but I know it's for all of us too. It's a verse from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. 
Peter says, judgment is coming and it starts with God's house, the household of faith. Now that's a problem because in the greater evangelical church in the past few decades, we have think and many in the evangelical church have been very vocal about how God's judgment is coming first and foremost to the LGBT community. It's not what the Bible says. You know, the, the, the LGBT community, that's the dirty thing, the thing worthy of God's judgment. But God's judgment doesn't start with LGBT. God's judgment starts with us who have the Holy Spirit and how we treat and love and speak the truth to everyone else. And so we better, better humble ourselves really, really quick Wherever in my life, wherever in our lives, wherever in the American church, we have been quick to single out LGBTQ as a sin while not dealing with or repenting of our own greed and materialism and consumerism in the church, our own church <laughs> idol worship and celebrity church culture, repenting of our gossiping and slandering and speaking against one another in the church, repenting of our own heterosexual sin in our lives, that hypocrisy, that our hypocrisy to do that, that's detestable to God. It makes Jesus sick. And we need to repent of that. And when I say that, you know, I've been using the, I'm speaking of the evangelical church at large and you know, I know this, isn't, this church isn't Westboro Baptist. You're not Westboro, you're Westside. I'm thankful for that. And I know, you know, the vast majority of uh, you people here who I talk to, your heart is that you want to love LGBTQ people really well. And you do want to just be light in their lives, pointing them to hope. Thank you, keep going, keep doing that. Um, do we, as we do that, do we in any way compromise the truth that the scriptures teach? No, because we will give an account to God on that. We're unwavering in the teaching of the scriptures, but we have to be known for our love as disciples of Jesus. And if you're here, by the way, you know, I, we get questions from you guys on this topic. Like, how do I go about, I want to love people in this community, but I, I don't know where to start. I get stuck. Like, how, how do, where do I start with loving, you know, my lesbian coworker? Where do I start with, you know, really loving the transgender in my neighborhood? I'm just gonna put some simple things up on a screen for those of you in that boat. Here's just some simple places to start. First, see a person, not a project. When you look at people, look people in the eyes, smile, Introduce yourself, ask about their story, and listen. Invite them to dinner. Identify something awesome in that person to affirm and encourage. Introduce them to your friends. Be normal. <laughs> Be normal. Seriously, pray for them. Be a friend. Share good news. Share good news. And this, by the way, is how we go about loving anyone, no matter what their lifestyle is. So, you know, you, I have a guy who's a neighbor and he always talks about he loves hitting the strip clubs. You know, what do I do about, you know, this, this couple, they're living together. This, love them, get to know them, and share good news in your relationships. And that's, I wanna end with that, guys, because the gospel of Jesus is really, really good news. 
The gospel is so powerful and it's such good news. I'm so excited to talk about this. The gospel is that even though all of us are broken and sinful, God did not abandon us. I mean, the whole, the, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the narrative of scripture is about God coming to us and caring for us and cleansing us sinners, broken people through the work of Jesus on the cross. And you need to know today, when it comes to your sexuality, when it comes to your sexual past, any pornea you've done, when it comes to your sexuality, the truth is the past is unchangeable. But it's not unredeemable. Jesus can redeem and restore and heal anything. And because of that, there's just so much hope. And if you're here today and your past is pornea of any kind, there's so much hope for you because Jesus has the power to heal you and set you free in him. If you're here today and you're attracted to the same gender, there is so much hope for you. I have friends who have come to Jesus and Jesus has completely changed their sexual desires. I have other friends who have come to faith in Jesus and their sexual desires haven't changed, but they are submitting their desires to Jesus and committed to live a life of celibacy and it's a beautiful thing. In those cases, um, which by the way, there is a false idolization of marriage in the Western church today that no one's really talking about. Marriage, God's way, is a beautiful thing, but it is not in any way depicted by the Bible as being a better way to follow Jesus than singleness. In fact, you could actually argue for the opposite if you look at some of Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians. Singleness is an equally beautiful and amazing way to follow Jesus. But even with that said, at the same time, to think that if you are attracted to the same gender, your only option is a life of celibacy, you know, alone with Jesus for the rest of your life, well, that's a myth. I think of uh, Jason Thompson from Portland Fellowship. He's going to be speaking at the bridge in this room this Tuesday night. Those of you between ages of 18 and 26, don't miss it. Jason Thompson will be here sharing his story. Jason is a man who is attracted to men, but happily married to his wife with two kids, and God has blessed their family, and it's an amazing story. Guys, the gospel is powerful. In fact, I asked uh, some of my friends who are attracted to the same sex and submitting their sexuality completely to Jesus and following him with their lives, I asked some of them what they would wanna say to anyone else here today who would anyway identify with that, or if you're sitting here and you're attracted to the same gender, here's what they wanted to say to you. The first is uh, one of my friends from our church family here in the city used to prostitute himself for gay sex downtown Uh, Now he's a follower of Jesus. This is what he says. What you feel doesn't intimidate God. And he is not asking you to live the white picket fence American dream life, but one of radical holiness. Living with complete confidence the truest thing about you, that you are his beloved. This so often feels like the loneliest road, but Papa is in your corner and he is your biggest advocate cheering you on, declaring to you, I love you, you matter. I'm not mad or sad or disappointed in you. Tell me anything and I won't jump ship. Nothing will scare me away or make me love you less. This next one's uh, from my friend here at Westside. She was a lesbian, is now a follower of Jesus. This is what she wanted to say. And this is just an amazing, amazing young woman. I wish you all could know her, just beautiful person. She says, where you place your heart, there your identity will be. We are all broken and in need of a savior. Those who have wronged us physically, mentally, and emotionally in the past no longer have a stronghold in our lives. 
It is time for us to put down the lies and walk in the truth that we were bought with a price to live a life worthy of honor and praise to a father who has never turned his face or walked away. One more, this is from one of my uh, best friends who was one of the groomsmen in my wedding, used to be a gay man persecuting Christians, now follows Jesus. This is what he says, Jesus is well acquainted with your struggle and loves you so much, he can't leave any of us the same. God has made you with a unique personality that's not defined by your orientation. The danger we face is hoping for a future of normality instead of contentment in Jesus. Our goal is to be like Jesus, not to fit some cultural definition of normal. Jesus gave definition to my life at just the right moment and he continues to challenge my definition of what living is. Guys, what beautiful words. I mean, those are written to people with same-sex attraction, but those words are true for every single one of us in this room. The gospel is good news for everyone. And I, guys, I know that some of the content today, you know, naturally some of the content today has been heavy and somber, but you guys, the gospel of Jesus is just the greatest news. In fact, when, when you talk about sexual sin in light of the gospel, we should be quickly pulling out balloons and confetti because God is throwing a giant party and he's inviting anyone and everyone who would wanna come to come. And all you have to do is agree with God about your brokenness and your need for his life transforming and lifestyle transforming power to come and begin its work in your life. And you become one of God's kids and there's freedom and you're washed and there's zero shame and you're set free and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Guys, marriage is great, but it's not God. Sex is good but it's not God. And the gospel of Jesus, the gospel is not get married and have good sex and a great family. That's a, a byproduct and blessings of doing all of that God's way, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not come to God and submit your sexual desires in, in a life of celibacy. That might be what some of you here today need to do or will do, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is God demonstrated his love for all of us in this. While we were still sinners, every single one of us, Christ died for us. And because of that, we can know the living God in Jesus. And Jesus is true hope and life. He is joy. He is freedom. He is the best thing. He is it. He is what, you, what you're looking for in life. And there's nothing in the universe that is better than knowing Jesus. There's nothing in the world better than just having him. Amen. Guys, that is really good news for anybody and everybody.